Hey, so welcome. I am so glad to have Dave Chase here with us on the Focus Forward Business Podcast. Um, Dave is an entrepreneur, an investor, uh, an author of a number of very influential books in healthcare. Um, among them, and I'm leaving a couple out, but among them are Engaged, Transforming Healthcare Through Digital Patient Engagement. Now that we're going to talk about that because he was involved with that in 2013 or 14, I think, maybe before. Sounds about, yeah, um, I think it went out in 2013. And then the CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, How to Deliver World-Class Healthcare for Your Employees at Half the Cost, which every business owner is going to want to know about. Um, I am Sturdy McKee, business coach and advisor and your host for the Focus Forward Business Podcast. And Dave, it is truly an honor to have you here, sincerely. Well, yeah, well, I'm thanks. really looking forward to the chat. Cool, thanks. Um, so Dave, will you please tell our listeners a bit more about who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, uh, sure. My background was in health technology. Many moons ago, I put in systems and hospitals, and then I started Microsoft's healthcare business, and actually then detoured away from healthcare for about a decade, uh, and then came back. Um, I go into to the details of that uh, and why I came back, um, what drove that of a personal, you know, some unfortunate tragedies. Um, you know, uh, about over the last 10, 15 years. And, uh, and then long story short, uh, started Health Rosetta, which is this, it's a movement, it's a blueprint, it's an organization, there's some technology there. Um, and it's really about, I mean, the, the CEO's guide subtitle sort of speaks yeah. to it, um, yeah. that uh, we're spending more than enough money to fund not only a world-class healthcare system, but to restore funding what, for what drives 80% of health outcomes, which is a bunch of non-clinical stuff. Um, that unfortunately, right. um, if you look at you know, the time we're in with COVID, uh, we really destroyed resilience at the individual, family, community, and governmental level. Um, and you don't have to come up with some complex hypothesis. It's a direct line from getting under, you know, underfunding in um, these things because healthcare, you know, stole it. Not actually care. I would say healthcare is not expensive. <laughs> right. Uh, clinicians are only getting 27 cents of every dollar. Um, it's what's expensive is profiteering, administrative bloat, price gouging, fraud, um, if you get rid of all that garbage, uh, it's actually quite affordable. Uh, right. And so, yeah, that's, those are kind of the, we, we started this movement to just get this out there. And uh, I didn't have to dream this stuff up. It's out there. It's been working. Um, maybe the short answer to that question is just, I'm Johnny Appleseed. Um, so. Like it, like it. Um. Don't, don't worry about it. Um, I'm, hope, I'm just hoping for no fire trucks today um, <laughs> as they go by. So uh, you've been involved in the founding of quite a number of businesses. How did you get started in business in the first place? And which one was your first? Yeah, the, um, I guess it depends on, on your definition of starting a business. I mean, I, 
I uh, delivered newspapers and mowed lawns. Um, if you want to go back that far. Um, That's important. Then, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, flung pizzas, cut a lot of fruit in the national park, um, working in Glacier National Park, uh, did moped delivery in Seattle, worked at a golf country club, <laughs> well, everything. Um, and then, but if you're talking about you know, kind of post, you know, college type of stuff. Um, I was recruited out of school to work for what's now Accenture. And that was, I was alluding to earlier. Essentially right. um, putting out, putting in IT systems um, and also helping with billing and accounts receivable and that type of thing. Cool. Um, so, Health resident, tell us a little bit more about why you decided to start that, and and both from kind of a movement perspective, but then also um, I want to know from more of the entrepreneur, you know, perspective, would you have done anything differently in the beginning of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. The the kind of kickoff was I had been on the scavenger hunt to find who'd cracked the code on healthcare. And my fundamental belief was, you know, Americans are problem solvers, people around the world are problem solvers. And surely people had solved this, this problem. And you just start pulling on the string and you find amazing things. And bit by bit, you're like, oh my gosh, there's this whole parallel universe of different ways to pay for healthcare, different ways to deliver healthcare. And it's not just two people over in some, you know, backwater doing it. It's happening. It's not mainstream. It's not the main way people are doing it. And it's better for everybody. And I put everything through the quadruple aim filter. Um, it was better for the caregivers, better for the patient, better for outcomes, and it costs less money. Um, and on the other hand, the status quo is brutal for caregivers, record levels of burnout and suicide amongst clinicians, Addiction, yeah. terrible for patients, mediocre outcomes, lowest net promoter score of any industry is health insurance, lower than cable companies and airlines, media, you know, pretty poor outcomes in the developed world. And of course, we're, we're bankrupting the country doing it. So you have on the one hand, utopia and dystopia, and the other hand, dystopia. And like, it's just a marketing problem, right? Marketing problem of the century, because of course there's three and a half reasons protecting the status quo. And so uh, as I puzzled over that, um, it became clear that uh, this is a massive societal issue, massive societal problem. This is on the scale in my view of things like civil rights, better food, climate, energy independence, all these type of things that, um, you know, eventually the politicians in DC will run to the front of the parade, but it always, these things always get solved bottom up. <clears throat> and so right. I just started studying these models. What's, what's a good proxy? I would say probably the best um, analogy is that I could find was LEED, which is um, from the U.S. Green Building Council. It's mm -hmm. you know, basically how to have buildings built and operated more environmentally friendly. And I, I like that analogy because the built environment's kind of like healthcare. It's really local, really entrenched. There wasn't some magic day where all the old polluting buildings 
got raised and the day that next day they're all magically green bills more the old waned over time the new rose over time and and i i found this these solutions which i called the health rosetta because you know health healthcare is kind of indecipherable like egyptian hieroglyphics and you know the rosetta stone decoded that um and i put it out there i'm like hey somebody should run with this you know and this is great you know i'd kind of done my thing in my last company and uh, people are like, no, you should do it. And I'm like, no, no, somebody else should do it. <laughs> um, and like, this is seemed sort of hubristic to even try to tackle it. Um, but at a certain point, you know, a lot of reflection. Um, and I realized, yeah, you know, actually the, the things you need to do to have a prayer of any success, and it's far from a guarantee, actually have pretty unique background. I've done two, prior to this, done two large scale industry ecosystem shifts. First, the shift from mainframe and mini computers onto the Microsoft platform. Mm -hmm. And later on, outside of healthcare, um, uh, playing a leading role in, in mainstreaming digital advertising and media. Um, and turns out there's a lot of the same things you do. You know, you gotta, you gotta prove it works. You've got to establish standards. You've got to educate people. Um, these are the things, how these things disseminate. And mm -hmm. if you look at like, how does Microsoft going go from being a nobody, um, you know, in the, you know, mid nineties in the enterprise, especially in healthcare mm -hmm. to just, you know, the de facto underlying platform. Um, there's a lot of legwork of building out a tech ecosystem that uh worked really well i mean essentially what what i had started there um became the model for how microsoft went after vertical markets and you know by the time um you know you fast forward today there's 28,000 partners on microsoft's platform just in healthcare globally you know it's a nearly a three billion dollar a year business none of these things are perfect analogies but you pull from these things and realize okay how do we start tackling this and we got to do it in a very different way because these are 10, 20 year type problems, not, you know, 12, 18, 24 month type problems. Right. And, and that's how, again, you have a prayer far from a guarantee, but when everybody else is chasing their tail in 12 month cycles and public markets and, and what, you know, a typical like carrier does, and you can play a five, 10, 20 year strategy, can you start to have a prayer? Um, and that's what we're doing. Well, and you're bringing up a great point here too, because the length, the time periods around adoption and really shifting a market are generally long. Yeah. You know, we've, we've seen, you know, even the transition to cell phones and stuff took a while to go over. And then of course, then, you know, accelerate with the touchscreen and all that kind of stuff. But I was fascinated just to share with you. Um, I was in an auto museum when I had a client visit a couple of years ago in Michigan and went to this auto museum and it was mostly around, you know, Ford and Chevy and GM and all that stuff, right? One of the few foreign cars they had though was the first car. And the first automobile was made by Mercedes-Benz hmm. in 1886. Okay, and it fascinated me because the first cars you really saw in the museum that people were using of any type looked an awful lot like it. And we're talking 1904. Yeah, you know, and it was 1912 before there was really any kind of mass adoption. And I'm like something as revolutionary and as integrated into our society and just daily use as the car, the automobile. 
yeah. still took 30 years. Well, you think about the <laughs> dynamic there. You had to have people who knew they're basically early owners had mm -hmm. to know how to basically be a mechanic, let alone roads. You know, they're designed for horses. Oh, not roads cars. were a big deal. Like all those, and then it's interesting, you know, that a little different, but I've, I've used this analogy recently of these type of plans that we're seeing disseminated now. Like we've already had Lewis and Clark. Like there's people who've been doing this for actually right. over 20 years. Um, and then we've had the Oregon Trail. Um, and that's mostly where we're at right now. Um, and, but what we're trying to do right now, like with some of the technology we're building out is we're laying some of the early track for the Transcontinental Railroad. Like we're not right. at the, you know, planes, transcontinental planes yet. Um, <laughs> we, we need to just lay the tracks like, and, um, and even, heck, even with technology, um, you know, people think about Instagram and there's some overnight successes once it's mainstream, but Facebook took a right. long time. I mean, it wasn't even close to being the first social network. Um, right. Microsoft and the enterprise, it was basically, before it really started making real money inside of Microsoft, that was 10 years into when it was getting built. Now, some of that was before it even came to market. So even in tech, which moves pretty quick, that was about 10 years. Um, lead, you know, 10, depending on what you define as mainstreaming, it was a 10, 20 year journey. Um, and so, you know, I got to do something to keep me off the streets. So what else? <laughs> um, so I may as well take on something. I mean, my, my family's happy, except when I talk too much about healthcare, like keeps, keeps me out of their hair. So um, why not tackle something that's, you know, I, I, you know, knock on wood, hopefully I live a long life and, and, you know, I'm, I'm one that wholly believes in the, uh, you know, it's better to have a job than not have a job but it's better to have a career than a job, mm -hmm. but it's much better to have a calling than a career. Um, and once you have a calling, you know, it's the old cliche, you don't work a day in your life because you're loving what you're doing. And I remember having lunch with um, uh, uh, one of the leading cardiologists came up with the artificial heart valve. He was 89 when we had lunch a few years ago. He's still going full, full bore. And having a great time, you know, so that's to me a good model to follow. And, and I, I got a few years to go before I'm that age. Yeah, I love it. And for the business owners out there too, I, uh, I'm not the biggest Steve Jobs fan in the world, but there's a quote, I think it's in uh, scaling up or maybe good to great, I forget. Um, but where he says, it's amazing how many overnight successes happen after 20 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> just like, yeah. So stick to it if you're out there. Um, so you just published a book and you might be developing a documentary. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. Um, the book just came out called Relocalizing Health. And, you know, it's premised on this idea that, you know, health, like I sometimes talk about like our healthcare system is, is the pre-Copernican view of the world where hospitals and carriers are the center of the health universe. That's not the case. Like the center of the health universe is mom, dad, home, neighborhood, community, and it fans out from there. Um, and, and if you take a county like the one I live in, 
quarter million people, um, my estimate is that at least, if, if you look at all, across all ages, we spent about two and a half billion dollars on healthcare. At least a billion of that is extracted out of our local economy for something that's fundamentally local. What's more local than an interaction between a patient and a PT, a patient and a doc, patient and a nurse, yet there's all these other fingers in the pie and people tend to think of, you know, retail or food when they think shop local, but like mm -hmm. health local. Um, and so it's basically lays out this, this five-step process that I have on the, the back of the book. You maybe see here, Ooh, my virtual <laughs> background's messing with me. Um, but it spells out local um, and it's a straightforward process. Um, and this is the way that, that by bit people not only slow the hyperinflation, but they actually reverse it. These organizations are spending 20, 40, even 60% is now the high water mark, 60% less, less with superior benefits. Um, and, and so that's, the book is about that. Um, and, and it lays out where we're a fiercely nonpartisan group. Um, and so we have this interesting mix of people and I'm pretty in tune with, with what, um, you know, animates people and motivates them and all that. And there's a chapter that really goes into these community, this concept of community owned health plans. This is where we believe right and left meet ultimately. And, the, and, and we define community in a broad sense. Today, a community is an employer or a union or something like that. Right. Um, but those are really fractals in the larger whole of relocalizing health. Um, and so that's that piece. And then, um, you know, the, on the, the question of the documentary, um, very uh, early in, in investigating this, but I, I, even though, you know, I had a TED talk, have a chat, you know, a case study in the book about um, Rosen Hotels, it still blows my mind that not everybody in America knows about this story. Um, it is just, you know, you, when you have a transformed health plan, having a ripple effect leading into an 80% reduction in crime and a more than doubling of high school graduation rates, um, and on and on and on, like load and almost no teenage pregnancy. And this is in a, uh, and this has been going on for over two decades, well over two decades. It's not some flash in the plan. Um, it, it is a microcosm of what we want. In fact, it could the, be. Yeah. The, the right. subtitle to the book is The Future of Healthcare is Local, Open, and Independent. And we're following the system change model that um, the essence of it is you find these microcosms of success. And then the real challenge is how do you apply the, the necessary amount of maybe a little additional business know-how, maybe technology, maybe capital to massively replicate that. And so I go through the examples of how that was done in India to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty through microcredit, rural hospital development, some improvement loans. Um, in the US, key part of this food system is wheat and what's going on there. There's some real interesting analogies that we're now bringing in here that go through that, that give me real hope um, that it's tough 
you know, for sure, tough um, challenge, but, uh, you know, one of the, the things that somebody called me, I thought was kind of funny was they called me a merchant of hope. Um, and because like, I usually have no hope when it comes to anything in healthcare. Um, and, uh, and so I just, I put that on my LinkedIn because I thought it was funny. I'm a, I'm a hope merchant. Um, and that's true. There, there are successes out there and there's a reason actually be hopeful in an area that can be pretty depressing. Yeah, we've got to take action, right? I mean, yeah. all of us. So I, I love that. And um, and I want to tie, bring this back in because, you know, you mentioned a couple of things. I don't think most people realize that 27%, right? 27 cents of the dollar makes it to the providers. Yeah. And so all that money you're spending on premiums and health and the rest of it, you know, a quarter of it's getting to the actual caregivers, right? Yeah. Um, and then... So a lot of people have heard about the triple aim in healthcare, and you kind of just mentioned and alluded to the quadruple aim, but I'd love for you to kind of go through that a little bit more because also because I think what you just mentioned about so much of the money exiting the communities through all these other folks that have their fingers in the pie, you know, the I, I know patients and employers are frustrated, but I, you know, being a former provider, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I know that providers, and this is something I think the employers ought to also realize, so many of the providers are incredibly frustrated as well. And it's not because of the rules that they made. They wouldn't design the system this way. They're just trying to adapt to it, and it's a dysfunctional system. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, unlike other, you know, highly educated professions, you know, your lawyers, your mm -hmm. accountants, your engineers, um, because of some of the medical culture, because obviously doctors have a particularly unique role in this, and they sort of set the stage, I think, for all of the clinicians. Um, back when healthcare costs weren't a big piece of the pie, there's this ethos, don't worry about the cost, don't worry about the cost. Right. Um, don't you know, mess your mind up with that stuff. And the reality is today, cost is a comorbidity. Um, and so if you don't take that into account, yeah. Um, and you prescribe some action or medication or whatever that's not aware of that, um, you're basically, you're, you're failing from day one. Mm -hmm. um, and so the thing that I saw as I found these models that were really working and unpacked what was going on there, it really is common sense. Um, it, mm -hmm. Your Iora Health, your Chen Meds, they know that if you care about the caregivers and absolutely i you know professional caregivers are what most people are thinking of but it also is the non-professional caregivers the family members sure critical to maybe friends um it's just common sense you care for them or conversely you abuse them and you make them do two hours of paperwork for every one hour of um right. you know uh, feels like grad time. school right. yeah that um, it's going to inevitably lead to anger, burnout, dissatisfaction, or worse. Sure. Um, and, and so on the positive side, when you do care about them, these are people who are called to their profession. I wasn't called. Like, I didn't want to, I couldn't be a good clinician. Um, that's not what I'm about. Um, but I have incredible respect for people who are called to that. And there's very few people who did it for the money. Now, there's money, obviously, that came in, and there's bad actors, blah, blah, blah. But people were called to it. 
And then they've had a bit of their soul ripped away from them every day that they practiced yes. in this model. Yeah. Um, and so when you restore a same setting, then it only stand to reason you're going to have a better patient experience. If their hands not on the door trying to get out of the exam room in seven minutes in a primary care doc right. or, you know, da 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 da. Interrupting um, every 28 seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're going to naturally have that kind of magic happens where a pay, you know, a doctor can't, you know, other than, you know, some trauma setting, but even the full recovery doesn't happen without the patient and probably their family and friends. So you get that partnership to happen. Then it's only common sense that you're going to get better health outcomes. Um, the third, you know, in this four step process. And then if you have the right economic model, guess what? You have better outcomes. It's going to lead to lower cost. You can't price gouge on a surgery that never happened. You can't surprise bill on an ER visit that never happened. You can't people get people addicted to an opioid that was never given. And when you actually have these models working, you know, like Rosen on the, on the health plan side, I remember when I wrote the opioid crisis wake up call, I had this hypothesis that if you had proper primary care, and to me, that's the fully actualized primary care includes behavioral health, PT and so on, mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't have an opioid issue. And I went out and not in a peer reviewed, you know, journal published thing, but what I found bared that out. And when I asked like Rosen, hey, what's the story on your opioid prescriptions? Like, I don't know, we'll look it up. Um, and sure enough, first of all, they got no uh, addiction issues in their workforce and it's over 5,000 people. Their opioid prescriptions were one sixth of the level of a typical American company. Not because 20 years ago before there was an opioid crisis, they had an anti-opioid program. They just did had everybody practicing the top of their license. Guess what? The PT, they have a Cairo practitioner in their practice too. They've got health coaches, they've got doctors, they've got nurse practitioners, dietitians, social workers, like incredible team, right? Mm -hmm. That's what can, it's, it's, yeah, it needs to be done. It's not rocket science. It's not some state secret. That's what it actually takes. But because all these perverse incentives, you're some outlier if you have them, which is again, absurd. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, so you've got your hands in a lot of things. You got a lot of balls in the air. Um, I think, you know, just understanding most of the audience here are business owners and all. Yeah. What advice would you give business owners that are struggling with not having enough time? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's a couple things. One is, um, you know, you can hire proper advisors. Most people don't have enough time to become a lawyer or an accountant or something else like that. And uh, so it's hiring the right kind of unconflicted advisors. And, and I emphasize unconflicted because a lot of the people they've been hiring are representing themselves as uh, protecting the interests of the buyer, but they're paid by the seller. That's a guaranteed scenario, not because of bad people of conflicts of interest. Um, the other thing is Every business owner, CEO I've ever met has said some variant on employees are our most valuable asset. And, and if you believe that, um, then, and healthcare is typically the second or third biggest cost, plus the well being of your workforce, um, the fact of the matter is more than half of the workforce 
with status quo plans is functionally uninsured. When your life savings are less than your deductible, you're functionally uninsured. So there's this residual level of anxiety and fear about getting bankrupted by you know, a bad stubbed toe, let alone cancer. Right. 42% of people who get cancer have had their life savings drained in two years. Like we're spending double what most countries and we're the undisputed world leaders in medical bill-driven bankruptcy right. and uh, preventable medical mistakes are the third leading cause of death. And the opioid crisis isn't an anomaly. It is our healthcare system. So our status quo system is not innocuous. So you are putting people in harm's way psychologically, financially, physically, medically, when you don't address it, even when you don't have time. So we've got, I mean, that's the tip of the spear for us was finding the great benefits advisors that you could trust, have the proper disclosure. I, you know, I always get asked, what's the first thing I should do? Got to get the right advisor. That's why, you know, we've, we've had 214 people out of the 1500 people who started to get through the process. It's not some goofy mail-in diploma. Um, these people can really help. Um, and even for people who are, you know, time starved, uh, we have people, and we, we're a small organization as an employer ourselves. We're only seven people on our health plan. We're able to do it. So it's not this myth that only large companies can do it. You have different tools and constraints as a very small organization, but you absolutely can do it. Well, I like that too, because you're bringing out the whole concept. I think too often people think, and particularly small business owners think about delegating and delegating down, like yeah. giving it to frontline workers or somebody. And what you're talking about is in essence, delegating to experts, you know, that you've hired maybe even outside the organization, but you're, that can go every which way, every direction. It's not a one direction or unidirectional kind of thing. So no, great point. Um, so from the business side with you guys, I, I once heard somebody describe business as a problem. It's just what problem will there be today? Um, so not just for the rest of us, but what are the challenges that you're facing as an entrepreneur? Hmm. What are you dealing with? Yeah, what do I deal with? Um, I would say uh, it's really figuring out a market failure that exists right now. And the market failure is we know that the, as I mentioned earlier, the lowest customer satisfaction of any industry is the health insurance industry. Right. Yet you have this sort of Stockholm syndrome dynamic where people are like, oh, but that's safe. I don't want to disrupt people. And I try to disabuse them of that notion. It's like, first of all, I'll tell you what's disruptive, all the stuff I just went through, right? Right. Um, right. And, you know, being the undisputed world leaders in medical bill driven bankruptcy, these types of things. So the status quo is not so innocuous. Um, but really, um, and on the other hand, we have all this track record, small companies, large companies, rural settings, urban settings, public, private, every corner of the country. Like we know it works. And, and then how do you get these people to, to do it? And part of it is, you know, a little bit the last question where people are time starved. They, they see, see themselves in another business, even though they are in the healthcare business, whether they like it or not. Um, and generally, 
they delegated to HR and they should be in the loop. But typically the CEO said something to the effect of, you know, keep our people happy, don't get us sued. And then later on, don't get us, you know, bankrupt. And, and the HR people have all kinds of issues that they have to attend to talent management and training and OSHA and, and, and it's, and they're typically not the most analytic, um, hard driving people. So they're sort of perfectly in the position to get taken advantage of. And back when it started, healthcare was a small yeah. thing and the power of compound interest made it a big thing. And so there's this legacy. And so it's a, how do you overcome that market failure where we have this thing that's so much better for everybody, patient, business, clinician. Um, we have this disaster on the other side, yet people are still kind of married to the disaster. Um, and so that's what uh, I puzzle over. I mean, that's one reason I do the books and exploring the documentary. That's why I consult to a you know popular TV show to sort of change the zeitgeist of, I mean, and the, the medical drama genre has shifted over the last two years because of the resident on Fox. They're actually addressing the business of healthcare. So you see Grey's Anatomy and some of these other folks actually change. So I, that's, you know, that's not the silver bullet, but it's starting to get some people, particularly millennials, right? The largest generation in history. Um, well, all those millennials now 40. Right, they they've left the invincible stage of life. They're having kids, they're having their own health ailments. Maybe they got elderly parents who are having health issues, and pretty much everything about a healthcare system is designed as a polar opposite to what they want and value. And so, again, another market failure where we if we can address that, we can actually have something that they want and value. And guess what? Ultimately, all of us want and value generally what millennials want. We they drove. Right. You know, smartphones and social media and better food, you know, so-called big food and big soda that had some of their worst earnings, thanks to millennials recognizing these, you know, garbage they've been consuming isn't doing them any favors. And so that's really the conundrum. And so that's where some of the media comes in. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's a conversation I was having an hour ago, right? We're having this discussion. Okay, how do we really unpack this buying journey how do you get people to flip? Now, some people are ready, um, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know we we can help out. We just launched, um, we're sort of soft launched a program for employers. It's just an education program. Um, that's ninety nine bucks a month, no long term commitment, just to kind of level the playing field. So these type of things of once you see it and understand it, you can't unsee it, and then you kind of have to do something. Um, but they've been fed so much bad information. And even just like people were like, oh yeah, healthcare costs go up every year. They're like, no, no, actually healthcare <laughs> costs have gone up. Healthcare prices. Premiums go up. up. Um, but if you actually look at the real market and the real market is actually quite large now and the real market defined by direct contracts between purchasers and healthcare delivery organizations or the cash pay market, in the era of high deductibles, this these are big markets. Prices haven't gone up in five to ten years in that market, um, yeah. and so you know that's a thing also to decouple these things. Because again, you've been on the delivery side. It's not like PTs or docs or nurses are paid fundamentally different than 10, 20 years ago. No, they're getting. I mean, maybe some with inflation, but they're not paid fundamentally different. It doesn't explain 
the the premium increases. Um, and once you understand the dynamics by which carriers operate, you know they're they're not bad people. They're rational actors operating in a set of perverse incentives. And so you just have to change that. And you know it's a obviously there's a lot of rooted interest in it, but that's where you have to start unpacking it. Well, and you mentioned prices at the healthcare provider level not going up so much. I mean, I I was doing billing for a company PT almost 30 years ago and getting paid as much or more than than in 2020 by the third party payers in real dollars, not in inflation adjusted or anything else. So um, that's just not, yeah, it's not where it's going. Um, Cool. Well, you've got a, you've got a lot to be proud of, but can you tell us what's your proudest moment in business so far? Um, I mean, I would say it's too early for what's going on now. I'm really, I'm pleased with the the way things are going. Um, And it's, it's on the right trajectory. I mean, we get, you know, punched in the nose all the time and, and, you know, bloodied and knocked down and getting up, but overall it's going pretty doggone well. I would say the thing that's probably given me the most fulfillment um, that, you know, sort of the, the book has been written on, if you will, is uh, the partners that bet with me and us early on in the Microsoft healthcare journey, mm-hmm. seeing them thrive and wildly succeed because they bought into you know what we were doing at that point um and that like yeah microsoft's making almost three billion that but you could probably at least 10x that in terms of the companies around um that ecosystem and that sometimes gets forgotten um they've they created a lot of opportunity and i i said you know there's a bunch of other people of course contributed to that well after i left um but I set it on a good path and, and I, I bump into these people and occasionally I'll see in somebody's, you know, bio on LinkedIn, you know, I was, you know, a board member of the Microsoft healthcare user group. Um, and, and they have no idea that like, I can, I dreamt that thing up and there was a reason I dreamt it up and it became a big, such a big force that the HIMSS organization acquired it. Um, and so it's, you know, those are like your kind of your kids and grandkids are sort of, you know, it's a long enough time has passed. So that's probably professionally the stuff beyond having developed people in their careers. I mean, I love that part of it too. I mean, I was just on the phone um, with actually a person working for a guy who worked for me early in his career. Uh, you know, one of the best employees I had worked for me and he's got a firm that's doing really well and he's got big following and podcasts, social media and all that. And to, to think that I played some role in that, those are those are gratifying too. No, that's cool. That's cool. Um, before we move on though, I want to go back to the, you mentioned the education for business owners. Um, what is what what does that entail? What do they do learn in the program? Yeah, I mean we model it after the program is set up for benefits advisors. So it's a combination okay. of oh, good. Um, kind of community where there's peer to peer. And mm-hmm. then we have sort of educational materials, webinars, resource libraries, office hours, um, because they're just outgunned in, in most cases. And we want to um, give them all the tools. And, and at this 
Tools to do what? Tools to basically be a wise healthcare purchaser. Great, thanks. Right, um, and and they're not as an industry right. right today, and and so, but they're also like again like the advisor program. They're going to be co-creators. So we have, you know, here's the ten things that are part of the program, but I would be surprised if we're doing exactly those things two years from now. Um, it will be clear, and and we we have our ideas but we're also sort of humble and have our metaphorical clipboard in hand, like, what do they really need? And, mm -hmm. and like, you know, the book that just came out, I've got a whole section on change management. Um, it's not just about having the right puzzle pieces of health plan. You can have the best design plan in the world, but if it's not thoughtfully integrated into how the organization works, um, right. it's gonna fall on its face. And so those type of things I suspect will develop more there. And you know, how do you get the whole organization on board from the top levels of the company to the individual member and actually by extension, their spouse? Because a lot of times it's the spouse right. who's really feeling the brunt in a good or bad way of the health plan. So those type of things. Now, that's a great point too, to think beyond just the people in your organization, but all their, the people they're related to as well. Cool. Um, so, my experience, I keep running into very successful people who are still always learning. Mm -hmm. You know, we our perception very often is, oh, they've made it or they're here or well, you know. Um, so what's the biggest thing that you've learned recently that you maybe wish you had learned 10 or 15 years ago? Hmm, that's a good question. What would that be? Um, hmm. I, th I think that it's it's some of the i mean it's kind of boring stuff that underpins these plans that um there's this notion of regulatory capture that you'll sometimes hear in industries healthcare being a good example of that where there's so much lobbying money that up and down the line from local state federal level they've kind of the incumbents have captured the industry and that's a real thing um just as much of a force is what I would call contractual capture. Um, and so you you kind of indirectly experience that, right? Particularly PTs, they're kind of one of the last to get fed at the table. So they get the table scraps, even though they're such high value. Um, and the contractual capture is so deeply embedded at every level of contracting up and down the line that... Um, I didn't fully appreciate just how insidious that was. And I mean, there's there's probably entire buildings, the equivalent of entire buildings filled with uh, attorneys working for carriers and PBMs and that are just stacking the deck against everybody. Um, and so um, understanding that yeah. and what to do about that is something that I had no notion of whatsoever as a, person, even though I was in healthcare, um, and even as, as I started going down this health plan thing, because it was just follow the money, like, that's kind of put me on this journey of like, there's all this dysfunction, you can get to the root cause if you ask why enough, and that's what led me to health plans, is just the way we purchase healthcare in this country is brain dead, that's the problem, um, and then why is that, you know, I write about that in the books, um, and then what do you do about it? How do you reset, right? Um, 
and that's where it gets into all this this i mean i hate reading contracts and there's a reason i'm not a lawyer um but thankfully my co-founder is a lawyer and was a securities attorney at that and understands fiduciary duty and understands these type of things and so it's it's a nice combination there um so yeah i'd say that's probably the the it's a very kind of wonky in the guts type of thing but if you want to change the industry, you have to change that whole contract infrastructure, every level between a provider and a network. There's all the things with the carriers and then the different people who are like the, the birds on the hippo that feed off of that and then mm-hmm. what drives their behavior. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you have to just, um, you know, the old Gordian knot, like the way that that's you right. slice um, a giant sword through that thing and do a reset, basically. What's to stop providers with, at least with a critical mass, a number of people from directly contracting with employers, particularly self-funded employers? Um, mainly it's, it's will and knowledge, but sometimes mm-hmm. they have contractual uh, restrictions themselves. And so... Sure. Again, there's always ways to work around it. And you see providers who have a particular restriction. Well, most organizations, most like particularly doctors practice under multiple tax IDs. And mm-hmm. so there can be other tax IDs that can be set up. So there's, there's almost always a way if you have the will. Um, but most have just surrendered um, and just like, right. okay, I'm just going to like bend over and take it. And are I going to run, run out the clock and retire? You know what? I'm just going to mm-hmm. leave clinical practice. I'm just fed up. Um, and so, you know, the like one of the recent success stories was a manufacturer in Mont- Great Falls, Montana, that took their spending from eight million dollars, over eight million, to under three and a half million, while benefits improved. Massive reduction. Sure. How did that happen? A bunch of direct contracts. It's really like five thousand direct contracts for the organization, not, not that big, they're 700 employees. And uh, the only way you have 5,000 direct contracts with not that big of an employer in nine states, 40 locations, if these contracts are really, really fair and simple. Um, and so- I uh, just gonna review 9,000 contracts or 5,000 right. contracts, right? Yeah, and so these are like, you look at it and like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Cause I already accept Medicare. They're saying we'll pay 130% of Medicare here, 160% here. Like we're already okay with Medicare and you're saying you're gonna pay 30, 40, 60% more. Yeah, I'll do that all day. Right. Um, and where do I sign? Um, and, and coupled with, we'll waive all cost sharing for the members and we'll promptly pay. They're like, how do I sign now? <laughs> right. Um, right. Well, right, when we're used to waiting 60 days to get paid. Yeah. Then, yeah. No, cool. That's that's awesome. Um, so, aside from the books you've written, okay, um, would you uh, maybe share one of your favorite business books or some, one you're reading now and why it's important? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one of my favorite business and kind of healthcare books um, are my, Marty McCary's books, "The Price We Pay" and "Unaccountable." Before that, but the one I'm reading right now just began it so i'm pretty early um but i've i've been listening to some of the podcasts and read some of the book reviews i have a reasonable idea it's called the upswing um by robert putnam and shaylin romney garrett 
and Robert Putnam, you may have heard his name. He wrote this book that people have heard about called Bowling Alone. And Bowling Alone really talked about the breakdown of, of community connectedness, people not doing bowling leagues, rotary, church, like all these types of things. Um, it laid out the problem, but not really a solution. And mm -hmm. Upswing um, makes this interesting parallel of how similar we are to the Gilded Age in the late 1800s. And things in terms of in income inequality and social breakdown and other stuff like that, that there's a remarkable parallel of what happened there where it was a, a lot of times people will attribute stuff to the New Deal or World War II, but it was actually, it was a long rise that happened that sort of culminated in the, the mid 60s. And then we started down this decline path. Um, and so we're basically at where things were at at the start of that improvement, that 60 year period. And so I find it um, very intriguing. You know, I, I think it's Mark Twain said, you know, history, something like may not rhyme, it may not repeat itself, but it rhymes some, you know, and, <laughs> and I think we can learn from history and it kind of is interesting to pull out those parallels, you know, because some particularly younger people, they've only seen decline. So you want right. to be able to give them hope and some pathway and you know we give hope within the context of healthcare, and it's a very fundamental uh, thing that has a ripple effect into many other things. So we think it's very foundational to that. Um, so yeah, that's the the upswing is the the one I've just started reading right now, and I'm pretty intrigued by it. Well, thank you for that. That that sounds like an awesome recommendation. Um, so any other thoughts you want to leave us with before we wind down here? Uh, yeah, the, the Calvary is not coming from D.C. to fix it. Um, <laughs> no, it's and so it's, it's, in whatever uniform, both, right? We it had both parties in full control. Um, it's on you. It's on me. It's on all of us. Um, it's like any great societal challenge. It starts bottom up, grassroots, and you can help your own micro community, your broader community, um, and make a huge difference. You know, those who want to protect status quo want you to, to believe it's like trying to solve Middle East peace and kind of hopeless and out of your control. And they know that the best way to preserve status quo is to politicize it. And what's easier to politicize in healthcare. So like once you realize you're getting gamed by those who are profiting from the dysfunction and you realize the Calvary's not coming from DC, then you have agency and like, okay, I'm gonna make stuff happen in my world. Maybe it's me as a citizen for my town you know, maybe it's my specific plan, my employer individually, or it's, you know, I'm on the PTA or I'm on the school board. Um, everybody has some area of influence and they need to, to man up and woman up and start making it happen. Because it's, I believe it's the greatest, our status quo healthcare system, in my view, is the greatest immediate threat to our country. And we got to do something about it now. Oh, well, thank you for that, Dave. I appreciate it. Um, thank you for being here. <laughs> I'm yeah, just yeah. kind of I'm processing myself, but trying to think through it. Thank, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Really do appreciate it. Um, I'll be doing a little bit more of a write-up and the links to the books and, and all that stuff uh, in the descriptions. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And again, thanks for being here, Dave. Yeah, my pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening.